Well, please turn with me in our Bibles this morning uh, to Mark's Gospel, and we're turning to Mark chapter 14 at verse 12. If you're using uh, the Black Church Bibles uh, from the chairs underneath, you'll find this on page 850. And we're reading verses 12 uh, through 21. Mark chapter 14 at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is, the one, uh, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. When you think of biographies, uh, biographies tell the life story of someone. And uh, the concentration, the focus of a biography is going to be on the key events uh, that characterize their story. Uh, there may be some uh, mention of the end of their life uh, that you would expect if they had passed, but uh, the focus is on really what happened during their life. But when we come to the Gospels, the Gospels give us uh, a life story of the Lord Jesus. They tell us about Jesus's ministry. But when you come to the Gospels, what you find is, is that there is a striking amount of attention given, a disproportionate amount of attention given, really, to the end of Jesus's life. It is given to his death uh, because the gospel writers are trying to highlight for us something that if we're going to understand Jesus right, then we need to focus in and be careful about understanding his death and the events surrounding his death. Christianity teaches us that Jesus died, uh, that Jesus was crucified. Uh, but it's not just that Jesus died that is... Uh, um, meaning uh, at the heart of the faith, but what his death entails and what his subsequent resurrection means. These events that took place need to be interpreted as well. And as we come to Mark 14, you notice that Mark is really slowing down now to focus on the details surrounding uh, Jesus's death. He's already told us about a plot 
the chief priests want to have Jesus arrested and ultimately put to death. Uh, Jesus is a problem that they want done away with. But their intention is, is that Jesus cannot be put to death during the feast. Uh, if they do that, there would be a, a risk of an uproar. Uh, an uproar because the populace, the people, uh, generally speaking, are uh, supportive of this Jesus. And when people are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, uh, it is going to have uh, an augmented attention on God's provision. And so this is a, a time of uh, great fervor around the things of God. And to strike down one of uh, his servants would be something that the people would protest. It was also something that they didn't want to have happen during the feast because they knew the Romans were going to be watching. The population in Jerusalem would increase fivefold, uh, many people believe, uh, during these feasts. And so for the Romans who knew that the Jewish people were people that did a protest and did try to overthrow the Roman power, they were going to be watching with increased uh, uh, scrutiny. So their intention was don't do anything during the feast. And so while they want to have Jesus put to death, uh, they are also adamant not to do it during this, this time. But we're also being told at the beginning, you remember last time, that this is uh, the setting is the Passover itself. It told us that the feast of the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread was upon them. These are actually two distinct feasts, but in practice they come together because the Feast of Unleavened Bread followed in succession after the Feast of Passover. That the Feast of Passover celebrated when they were delivered from God's judgment in Egypt and brought out of the land of slavery. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread was when they had to leave in haste. And so they made their bread quickly and they didn't allow the bread to rise. And they ate that bread as they left uh, uh, the land of Egypt. But that that whole feast took on a, a symbolic meaning that they were to, uh, to cut off their old way of life. That now that they were to follow the Lord, they were to put away the remnants of that old lifestyle and now live consecrated unto the Lord. So these feasts are the setting in which uh, we're coming to as we return to Mark's gospel uh, this morning. But we want to think about what is happening at the Passover. And we want to see how Jesus is approaching his own death. And we want to see that because Jesus is willing to accept betrayal, then we are to see that Jesus' death is actually an act of submission. Uh, it is an act of love, ultimately, uh, to his heavenly Father, as well as to his people, to sinners. We want to think about these verses in three thoughts. We want to think about the preparation that is uh, taken. We want to think about a pronouncement that is made. And then we want to think about a perspective that is shared. Well, first, uh, there is the preparation that is uh, uh, made in these verses. It tells us in verse 12, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you? to eat the Passover. Already you see that the two feasts are used interchangeably. Uh, it is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Really there it's talking about, uh, about the Passover festival uh, that precedes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But it is uh, the occasion of the Passover now 
And the disciples come to Jesus and they say to Jesus, where are we going to eat the Passover? The law of God says that they had to eat the Passover in Jerusalem. And now they are asking Jesus, what are we going to do? Uh, this is the most important feast in uh, their, their whole annual year. And so preparations needed to be made if you were going to find a place in Jerusalem to celebrate this meal. But by asking Jesus this question, you see that they are already in the dark about what is going to happen. They have to ask Jesus this question because they don't know uh, where they're going to celebrate this besides getting into the city. Uh, they're on the outskirts, but they have to go in uh, to celebrate uh, the Passover. And so they ask him uh, this question. But uh, in response, Jesus sends two of his disciples to go into Jerusalem uh, to make preparations for the Passover. If you read in other gospel accounts, it tells us that it was actually Peter and John uh, that Jesus sent. But he sends two. Uh, he doesn't send all 12. Now, we might look at that detail and think, well, that's not very significant because how many people does it take to prepare a Passover? Uh, perhaps not many. Uh, but when we look at what's going on here in the wider context, it may suggest something of Jesus' own guardedness about what is happening. That it seems intentional that Jesus sends only two. Because in sending only two, he is limiting the number of people who know where they're going to celebrate the Passover. Where the whereabouts is of this celebration in Jerusalem. We have to remember what is going on in the wider context here. In John's Gospel, it tells us that there was already an, an arrest warrant out for Jesus. In John chapter 11, it tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, that he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So rather than sending all 12 disciples into Jerusalem and then drawing attention to themselves or having all 12 of them uh, uh, knowing where they're going to go and celebrate the Passover, Jesus selectively sends two. Only two will know the whereabouts of this celebration. And when he sends them, notice as well, not just that he only sends two, but he sends two and he doesn't tell them who to ask for. When they go into Jerusalem, they're given no name to ask for, to be able to identify the location, to identify the person. Rather than going around and asking, have you seen so-and-so? Or looking for the right place to go. Jesus says, instead, when you go into Jerusalem, you're going to find a man carrying a jar. That you will meet him, follow him, and he will show you the room where you're going to go. Again, this gives the impression that Jesus is being very guarded. Um, there's been preparations made by Jesus here. But he is very carefully doing this in a way that doesn't call attention to the whereabouts of where he's going. Uh, uh, saying that a man will come out and meet them uh, with a jar of water. Now that might sound like finding a needle in a haystack to us. But it really wouldn't have been. Because in the ancient world at this time period, uh, water jars were domestic supplies. Uh, water jars were used in the home. And so if someone was filling a jar of water, it would have been most likely a woman. Uh, if men were going to fill up water, they would have used leather skins. And so if you looked out scanning around yourself and you see uh, a man carrying a water jar, it would have been something that did stand out. 
Maybe you young people have used those Where's Waldo books, where you see Waldo with the red and the white striped uh, shirt, and you have to find Waldo on a page that is scanned uh, all over the place. Uh, there's so many things to look at. But when you know what you're looking for, uh, it can make it easier to find what you're trying to find. And here we're being told that something distinct will come uh, when they go into Jerusalem. A man will be carrying a water jar. Again, this seems to be a prearranged plan for the disciples to meet this man so that they can go to the whereabouts of having this Passover celebrated. But it all seems to suggest that Jesus is being very careful. Why is Jesus being so careful? Only sending two, not giving them a name, having a man carrying a jar of water who will find the disciples when they come to the city. Why is Jesus being so guarded? Jesus is being guarded, we could say, well, he knew that his death was imminent. Jesus had already said that that they were going to Jerusalem and that death awaited him. Jesus had already highlighted these things. And yet, Jesus is still showing purposefulness in everything he does. He knows that death is looming close, and yet there are still things that need to happen before the end. What are those things? Jesus needs to celebrate the Passover. Jesus says that, doesn't he? that he longed to have the Passover celebrated with him, that it was important to him to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, to be able to explain to them its significance, to be able to show them the fulfillment of it in his own death, to be able to teach them what is about to take place, what his death is all about. But it also seems that Jesus is being very careful here, not just to help them understand the Passover, but because Jesus also needs time to pray. That before he is put to death, he wants to be able to have that time of prayer. And so even as all of these things are happening, we don't see Jesus out of control. We see Jesus navigating through the end in faith, but with great care as well. In other words, there's preparation on Jesus's part as the Passover looms. He had to make the preparations for Passover, and he did. He, he does it even though the disciples don't know where, where are we going to eat the Passover. He, he makes all of these preparations ahead of time so that it can happen uh, uh, collectively. Not only this, uh, but uh, we see that uh, the disciples themselves also have to make preparations. It says uh, that they would meet this man and they, he would take them back uh, to the house. And then in verse 15, it says, he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. And so just as Jesus had to make preparations ahead of time, Jesus tells his disciples that when he shows them the room, they are to make preparations as well. What preparations did they have to make? Well, on the first day, they had to remove all the leaven from the house. They had to remove the leaven in order to celebrate this festival correctly. They also had to have the, the lamb that was brought before the priests. They had to have that lamb sacrificed uh, in the core temple. And then the roasting of the lamb with the bitter herbs. But then there was also the wine and the food. The, uh, the apples, uh, the, the pomegranates, uh, the dates, all of these things that were part of the Passover celebration. 
And so there was a preparation that the disciples had to do as well. But there's a principle in that when we step back and think about it. That just as there was preparation needed in order to rightly celebrate the Passover, we should learn from that that there's preparation needed in order to properly worship God. That, as Matthew Henry says, solemn ordinances call for solemn preparation. That when we come to worship, it should be something that we come to with intentionality. And part of that is something as simple as having sleep so that we can come rested and prepared to worship. Part of that is being able to mentally set things aside so that we can concentrate on God and on his works. But there should be a sense of preparation when I come to worship that says this is something important. There's, there's something that I value in what is about to happen. And so I have to plan ahead in order to enjoy the fulfillment of that, that, uh, that blessing. Jesus made preparation for Passover. The disciples made preparations as well. And so we should be intentional about how we use our time, even when it comes to the gathered worship on the Lord's Day. So there is the preparation for the Passover. But then secondly, there's uh, the pronouncement that takes place at the Passover. When they had come together, together uh, in verse 17, when it was evening. Uh, this is when the Passover would uh, take place at evening. Uh, it says, when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Jesus says something that uh, uh, would have been received as uh, a bombshell. Jesus had spoken about his death, and his disciples didn't didn't understand what he was getting at. Uh, Jesus spoke about being betrayed, and his disciples, again, couldn't process. They couldn't accept what Jesus was talking about. But now Jesus goes one step further and says, not only is he going to be betrayed, uh, but he's going to be betrayed by the 12 that one from them one of the 12 is going to betray him that his death is going to be orchestrated by one of his own followers Uh, jesus uh, says something uh, that must have uh, and does startle them it tells us in verse 19 uh, that they were sorrowful uh, that it pained them to hear this sometimes you can see pain in someone's face when they hear something that that their face uh, changes that you can feel the pain that it's taking over them the disciples here were pained when jesus said one of you will betray me and that that is something that they couldn't uh, imagine being a possibility here were men who had followed jesus for at least two years These were men who were close with Jesus. They had followed him. They had seen him do miracles. They had spent time together with him when others weren't around. They they were uh, like friends. And now Jesus is saying one of them would betray him. They couldn't imagine this being a possibility. Uh, And so they start saying there in verse 19, one after another, is it I? Literally, we could translate that as surely not I. 
Uh, it's, it's phrased with a negative connotation. Not me, right? It couldn't be me. Tell me it's not me. They want to be cleared of any sense of guilt, any sense of doing such a deed. But what's striking about what they do here is, is that when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, none of the disciples respond by saying, it's Judas, isn't it? None of them respond saying, Judas has always been different. None of them could detect something that made Judas different than the others. And so there was a veil, as it were, that prevented them from seeing the motives of Judas, someone who could accompany the, the Twelve for so long and yet be bent in a very different direction. They didn't understand what was in the, the capacity of the human heart. The scriptures teach us that the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Jeremiah makes that point, describing that when it comes to the interior thoughts and the will of humans, they are constantly supplanting the place of God for something else. It's deceitful, that it's not so stable, that God's place is removed so very quickly for something else. And here, uh, Jesus is highlighting something about the capacity of the human heart, that it can do uh, desperately sick and twisted things, even betraying a friend, even turning against uh, the Lord Jesus. And so here, as the disciples are filled with sorrow, uh, it is the pain of thinking that one of them would do this act. But it's also a pain that is something they can't fathom to be true. It can't be. It doesn't make sense to the way that I look at people around. The way that I look at these 12, we're all, we're all good. And Jesus is saying it's a mixed company. That not all are seeking to honor Christ. If we don't realize the propensity of our will to turn against God, the capacity of the heart to pursue something other than God's will, then we don't really know ourselves. That is one of the great quests in life, isn't it? To know oneself. The Bible is saying, unless you know yourself in relation to God and what you will do, then you don't know your desperate condition, how you're willing to turn against God for something else. Because our nature is such we are drawn after many things, just like the people of Israel were with their idolatry. So Jesus makes this announcement uh, that one of them will betray him. And one of the fruits of that is it highlights that they can't see into the hearts of one another. Uh, but also highlighting something of the, the deceitfulness of our sinful nature. But why else is Jesus really drawing this out? Why, why tell the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. Especially when Jesus doesn't actually tell them who. Why does he go this far but no further? It seems that there's a couple of other reasons why Jesus is saying these things. One is, is he wants to highlight for his disciples that he's still in control. That in light of what is going to happen, Jesus doesn't want them to think that things went 
random, that things turned and went chaotic. Jesus wants his disciples to know that what is about to happen is ultimately happening under his control. As he says elsewhere, uh, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So he's highlighting for them, in spite of what is going to happen, the betrayal, he sees it. It, it is not something that caught him off guard. He saw it and remained in control. But the second reason seems to be as well something that he wants to stress even to Judas. It's like there's two layers of conversation happening here where he is speaking not just to the, the company at large, but he's also stressing something to Judas. Imagine being Judas in this situation. And Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. Judas's mind must have been racing. Is he guessing? Does he know? Is he going to say? Are they all going to turn on me right now? And Jesus is saying this in order to confront Judas that he knows what's in his heart. That he's warning Judas about his own heart and his own choices that he's about to make. Jesus is saying these things are plain and they're not hidden. They're not escaped from the knowledge of God. And so here Jesus is, as it were, pressing Judas, saying, I know your intentions. And yet he says that in the context in which he's sharing a meal with Judas. Jesus is the head of the Passover meal. Jesus is the one who's extending this food. He's sharing it with his betrayer. And he's telling his disciples, I'm extending this kindness in the context of knowing there's a betrayer in the midst. In spite of Judas's uh, intentions, we see that there is a kindness being extended from Jesus. So there's the pronouncement by Jesus at the Passover about being betrayed by one of the 12. But then thirdly, uh, there is the perspective. In verse 21, it says, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Not only was Jesus aware that one of the 12 would betray him, he knew that it was Judas. Uh, as we learn in other gospel accounts, he uh, identifies that it would be Judas uh, by telling him to go and do quickly what he is going to do. So Jesus knew that it was Judas, but he does not uh, spoil Judas's intention because he sees purpose behind it. Imagine when you leave this place, you are aware that someone is about to smear your reputation. Someone is about to tell a lie about you that is going to forever shape the way people think about you. What would you do? You would probably want to anticipate that. You would want to protect your character. You would want to protect yourself by intervening, stopping it before it gets out, by before it spreads and causes problems. Here Jesus is saying, one of you will betray me. That in context he's highlighting he knows it's Judas, and yet he doesn't intervene. He doesn't protect himself. And ultimately it's because he believes 
This is the way it is written of him. So it goes for the Son of Man, as it is written. Jesus believed that betrayal was his fate. He believed that this was the plan of God, and so he accepted it. He could have stopped it. He could have told the disciples, it's Judas, and they would have mocked him. But Jesus says, this is the way it is written. And so Jesus believed that it was the plan of God. Uh, He believed uh, that this was the outworking of God's purposes. When Jesus said earlier, it is the one who dips uh, the bread with me, Jesus is not there trying to identify exactly which person it is because they were all doing that. They were all eating the meal together. They were all sharing uh, in the same food together. What Jesus is doing there is he's saying something about the nature of his betrayer. It is one who was close to me, someone that I shared bread with. It was someone that you trusted, that turned on you. Jesus there is describing something of what Psalm 41 was highlighting. One whom I trusted, a close friend. We ate a meal together. He has turned up his heels against me. Jesus believed that he was submitting to God's plan just as it was of the Lord's anointed in the Old Covenant. That he would be betrayed, but ultimately as the psalm goes on, the Lord will vindicate me and he will cause me to stand uprightly again. Psalm 41 goes on to say that because of his integrity, the Lord would cause him uh, to be made right in his sight. And so Jesus here entrusts the fact that he will be betrayed, but ultimately he will be honored by God. That as the psalm ends, it not only speaks about being honored by God, but he will be in the presence of his God forever. So his end is one of glory, even though he's treated shamefully. And all of this is Jesus showing his submission to the sovereignty of God. There's purpose in what is happening. It's not meaningless. But Jesus' perspective is not only on the sovereignty of God, it's also on human responsibility. Because in the same breath, after saying, as it is written of the Son of Man, so it goes, he goes on to say, but for that man it would have been better if he had not been born. Notice there that Jesus does not speak of Judas as simply being a puppet. He doesn't say, well, it wasn't his fault because he was demon-possessed. The devil made him do it. He doesn't say uh, that it was just a random act. No, Jesus says that what he did was evil and that he's responsible for the choices he made. Jesus is impressing upon us something about the, the dignity of the human person, but also about human responsibility. You see, we live in a world where people try to pit these two things against one another. That either God is sovereign or we have free choice. People who believe that we are in free choice mode believe we live in a world without any meaning ultimately. And the opposite, people that say that there is uh, order, that there's design or that there's fate or that there's something overarching all things, think that that makes us into human puppets. The Bible actually says both are true. It doesn't ultimately exhaustively answer how both of those are true but it maintains both of those are true. That Jesus submitted to the sovereignty of God. This is God's plan. And he also affirmed the importance of human choices. 
what you choose has significance. It has consequence. Because you're moral agents before God. And you will be held accountable to God for what you do with the revelation he's given to you. And so Jesus' perspective shapes and forms the way that we live. When we acknowledge God's sovereignty, it allows us to have peace and trust. There's order. But when I also affirm human responsibility, I can understand my calling and I can see meaning in the choices I make. And so there's an aspect to the life of faith that has to acknowledge both of these. That's how Joseph spoke in the time of Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers as a slave. But at the end of the story of Joseph, he said, as for you, you meant it for evil, human responsibility, but God meant it for good. Same action. One was acknowledging human choice. The other one was acknowledging God's direction of it. God meant it for good. And so as we think about this, we have to see that God is in control of all things, but also that we are responsible for our choices. The two are to be embraced and upheld. So what does all of this have to do with Passover? It teaches us that Jesus came, and as he looked at the Passover that was being celebrated, he understood that his death was imminent because he was the true Passover lamb. He was the lamb whose death would be shed in order to bring the forgiveness of sins. That Jesus did this submitting to the plan of God. As it is written of me, I will be betrayed. But he also trusted that God would exalt him and that he would be in God's presence forevermore. And the hope of the believer is is that we share in what Christ has accomplished. That we are protected by the blood of the Lamb from the judgment of God but we share in his victory that we will be exalted in God's sight just as Christ was exalted, that his resurrection becomes our resurrection, that his enjoying the presence of God forever becomes our ticket to enjoying God's favor and presence forever. So Jesus is shaping our perspective here by seeing all things in light of the works of God through him. He knew he was going to be betrayed. But he didn't intervene. Why? Because he wasn't aiming to protect himself, but to protect his people. That's what a savior does. That's what Christ came to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about uh, the Passover, as we think about what Christ uh, ultimately underwent uh, in being betrayed, Uh, even from uh, within his own circle of friends. We pray, Lord, that we would see your directing hand behind it, that we would be able to interpret these things as not random or simply uh, tragic, but ultimately a part of the design of God. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to live by faith, uh, to trust in your word, and to see the importance of our action and choices. Take away our sins now in Jesus' name.